We're going to start in chapter 15, um, very early in the morning. All right, so would someone read for us this portion, uh, chapter 15 through verse... Go ahead and read through verse 16. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Okay. Go ahead and read the soldier part. Read 16. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Okay. Thank you. So, here we have... um, the second trial of Jesus, the second trial in the book of Mark. Uh, the first trial, of course, was in uh, the home of the high priest and uh, an illegitimate trial in the middle of the night, okay? Not in the correct place. You know, it would be like, you know, some judge uh, inviting you to his home and trying you in his living room uh, with his cronies surrounded, uh, surrounding him. And uh, it just, it doesn't make any sense. It's not an official trial. And, uh, and of course, this is all illegal. And this is, Mark is emphasizing the fact that these trials are illegal, that they are not, um, they're not just. Um, we talked about uh, Peter and uh, Peter's decision uh, or indecision, his inability to stand with Jesus um, and the contrast between what's going on with Jesus, in essence, in the courtroom, and Peter in the courtyard, right? Um, and there, who's, the question is, who's on trial, right? Uh, Jesus is on trial inside, but he's in control. Peter is outside uh, of the house, but he's being tried, right? And he's, and he's being accused by inexpert 
accusers, uh, a servant girl, right? Whereas Jesus is being accused and, and prosecuted by the most learned people in all of Judaism. Jesus, of course, is silent. Peter is silent. Um, when Peter finally speaks, it's to deny Jesus, to speak a lie that he doesn't know him. When Jesus finally speaks, it's to speak the truth that he is indeed the Son of God. Okay, so you see this incredible contrast between the two. And this continues as Jesus then is taken to Pilate. Um, the, the Jews have made up their mind and uh, they decide they're going to pass this off to Pilate. So very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, these are the three stooges, right? These are the three um, that have that are conspiring against Jesus. And Mark is very careful to continue to name these people as the conspirators. Um, They are the Sanhedrin. They made their plans. They bound Jesus. They led him to Pilate. And Pilate asked the simple question, are you the king of the Jews? Right? Why does he ask this particular question? It's the only one he cares about. Oh, Religious stuff isn't important to Pilate, yeah. right? Yeah, that would have, being the king of the Jews would be illegal. Right. Because only the emperor could carry that title. And so that was a... Uh, there are only... A, justified the death sentence. Exactly. There are only a few things that the Romans care about. You can do whatever you want. Pay your taxes, number one. Number two, don't disrupt trade. So don't cause any problems. And number three, don't declare yourself to be an alternate king. Okay? You don't do those things, everything's fine with the Romans. You do one of those things, and they're going to come down on you like a hammer. And that's exactly why he's asking this question. Are you the king of the Jews? But notice how this issue of the kingship of Jesus keeps coming up in the trial. That's all he's been accused of, and that's all he's being tried on. Are you the king? Yes, he's the king. Okay? This kingship issue is very important. Uh, Right down to the purple robe and the whole bit, the crown. It's all about Jesus being the king. Um, And so uh, Jesus says, you have said so. The chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? And Jesus is uh, is silent, and Pilate is amazed. Jesus has the opportunity to defend himself, but he doesn't defend himself. Why? Because he knows that he can defend himself. And if he defends himself too well, he won't go to the cross. Imagine the restraint. Okay? I think about myself in that situation. I'd be like, okay, Pilate, let's talk. You know? These guys, you know what's happening. Pilate knows what's happening. It says here he knows that they handed Jesus over because of their own self-interest. He knows this is a sham. But Jesus is silent in the midst of it. But isn't there also a prophecy? Isaiah 53, like a sheep before its shears, is silent, right? Um, and so, yes, Jesus is fulfilling pro- prophecy by being silent in the face of his accusers. 
Um, absolutely. So now we come to this, this strange custom at the time of the festival, and that is to offer up a prisoner to be released. And so Pilate offers up two prisoners. One is Barabbas, and one is Jesus. You've probably heard this before, but the name Barabbas means what? Son of the Father. Right, so you've got a son of a father. And then you have the son (laughs) of the father. Right? You have this choice that is set before the people. Um, What does Barabbas represent? Huh? Well, he represents represents, um, rebellion. Rebellion. He's a revolutionary, probably a zealot. Yeah, he's he's referred to as a as a as a a a rebel, right? They call him a thief, a rebel. He's probably someone who was arrested because he was a zealot or a sicario or one of these guys who was trying to overthrow Rome by violence. Okay, so he represents violence. He's a terrorist. Yeah. Okay, Jesus, as opposed to rebellion, he represents the kingdom. The kingdom of God, right? But the kingdom of God is not of this world, right? It's not by violence, it's by sacrifice. This is... This is... This is God's way, and this is man's way. I have a question. Yeah. I, I never thought about this before, but what, you know, the custom at the festival, we're talking about Passover, is that correct? But we're talking about a Roman context here. Right. Releasing the prisoner. Right. Um, I'm a little confused, I guess. Well, I mean, I, does, it, does it have to do with a religious thing, or is it more of a Roman thing around the Passover? It was a sign of benevolence that, you know, we're, we're not really the terrible tyrants. We, you know, we'll grant you at least one boon each year just to show From you. the Roman government? Right. The Romans, yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, well, so that's what... That's it's, it's a means to placate the people, right? Well, and to okay. say, you know, hey... You're in your time, your high festival of your God, and uh, we'll show mercy. We'll show mercy, and we'll grant you the release of a prisoner. Okay? So that's kind of, that's kind of the deal. Um, but I, I think it's pretty clear here. We have this, this option that's laid before the people. Are you going to take man's way? Or God's way. You're being oppressed. Which way are you going to choose? Are you going to take man's way, which is violence, to take matters into your own hands and rise up in rebellion against your oppressors? Or are you going to take God's way? Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to carry your cross? 
Are you going to show love? Are you going to think future, think the kingdom and what God is doing? Which way are you going to go? And this, this option is laid before the Jews, before the Jewish people. Right? And what happens? What do they choose? They choose man's way. And what is the result, Peggy, of that choice? The result is Christ's crucifixion. That Jesus is going to be crucified, yeah. Within 30, 40 years, the the temple will be destroyed. All of Jerusalem will be destroyed because these zealots, this movement, will rise up and the Romans will finally say, I'm tired of this. Destroy this whole temple, destroy this city, disperse these people because they're a pain in my neck. Okay? And so man's way ends in violence. It's just the way it is. It ends in defeat. And that's exactly what happens. And it's like they choose this way. Their king was before them. And instead of choosing their king, they chose and God's way out of, out of Roman oppression, they choose man's way. And man's way leads to Masada, which leads to death. All of them die. All of them die. Every last Barabbas dies. Every son of, the fa- of a father. Christianity follows God's way. And what happens when we follow God's way? Within 200 years, the Roman Empire is converted to Christianity. Who wins? Had the Jews followed their Messiah, what would have happened? Eventually, they would have thrown off the oppression of Rome because Rome would have converted to their religion had they accepted Christ. So it's really pretty amazing when you think about it. And this, this option is laid out before them and they choose poorly. Right? Yes. So if Pilate really understood that Jesus was innocent, why did he have him scourged so that he didn't have any flesh on his back, couldn't carry a cross there? Well, first of all, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified because he's not interested in justice. Pilate is interested in the peace, right? (laughs) So, yeah, they're, they're walking away. So, Pilate is interested in maintaining the peace, right? He's got a powder keg on his hands. Jerusalem swells to like 10 times its population at Passover. All these crazy Jews. It's a crazy place anyway. Now you got 10 times the crazies there, right? They're all whipped up. And this Jesus character is potentially a problem to cause more trouble. And so I got to placate these people, right? I got to placate these religious leaders. It's nothing personal. It's just business. This is my job. Well, it's going to get reported back to Rome. 
Pilate's already on thin ice because he's done things that have upset the Jews and he can't really afford to have anything really major happen or else he's ousted and he is ousted shortly after this. But it's all political. It really is. um, Now you ask about the flogging, Mm -hmm. which is brutal, right? It's horrible. Um, But... In the Roman sense, in some ways it's merciful, right? Because had Jesus been at full strength and hung on the cross, he could have hung there for days. And that would have been even more uh, torturous, right? That's why Pilate was so shocked when... When he died so quickly, right? Because, but in essence, the flogging shortens the window. And again, God is in control of this. All this has to happen before the Passover. All of, you know, Jesus could have been hanging on the cross for three, four days. People did. They would hang on the cross for days. Um, And so, uh, in essence, I think the flogging really weakens Jesus so that it, it all takes place within one day. So, in a weird way, it's merciful. But it's horrible. Yeah. Okay, the whole thing is horrible. Um, again, notice, notice the soldiers. The soldiers led Jesus away into the praetorium. They called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns they set on his head. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head, falling to their knees. They paid homage. They mocked him. Then they rip off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him and they led him off to be crucified. And so think about this scene. Again, this issue of kingship is front and center. That's the only accusation. That's what the Romans are, are mocking him of, right? Now, now think about all the people that have been involved in this so far. We've had the religious leaders who have tried him and condemned him. We've had the Roman procurator who has tried him and, in essence, condemned him. He's the one who handed down the sentence. We have the Jewish people who yell for him to be crucified. And now we have the rank-and-file Roman soldiers who mock him and beat him. And so no one gets off, right? Nobody can say, well, it was really just these people that did this. Everyone has a hand in Jesus' trial and death. Everyone. Okay, from leadership to rank and file, both Jew and Gentile. Okay? And so the the scripture is very careful to make that point. Why is that point important? Because he was rejected by the whole world. I mean, that's the world. That's right. right It represents the world. And we're all culpable in the death of Jesus. Amen. And so, you know, the church later would blame the Jews for killing Jesus. Boulder dash. The gospel is very clear that the world, everyone, both Jew and Gentile, have a hand in this. All right? All of them had the chance to call it off. But they all send Jesus to the cross. All right. Um, Okay, we're at Simon of Cyrene. Now we're finally to where I thought we were supposed to be. Okay. (laughs) Certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, 
was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. And they cast lots to see what each would get. Let's pause there for a minute. I want to talk about Simon of Cyrene. Who is this guy? He's obviously there for the Passover. Okay. Pilgrim. Okay, he's there for the Passover. So, but he's from Africa, so he may be from that, a, community, a Jewish community in Africa. Okay, could be a Jew or he could be an African. We don't know, but he's from Cyrene. What else do we know about this guy? He, he's the father. He has two sons, and they must have been known to the early church because their names are mentioned. We have Alexander and Rufus. Um, very interesting because Mark is not a name dropper, right? It's one thing we've learned as we've gone through this, this story, right? Very few names are mentioned. And when a name is mentioned, it's for a reason, okay? Usually there's a reason. And I think uh, there's a couple of reasons here we get these names. Uh, just as Peggy said, Alexander and Rufus, which seem to be totally inconsequential to the story, right? He's the father of Alexander and Rufus, <coughs> must be known to the church. Now, in Romans chapter 16, there is a guy named Rufus that is mentioned in the salutations um, at the end of the book. And we know that Mark is written most probably to Roman Christians as its original audience. And so Rufus is, a, is able to give testimony to the truth, the veracity of this account because his dad carried the cross. Okay, so he's a first, maybe a first, but definitely a secondhand witness, right, to all of this. Then we got this guy named Simon. He's from Cyrene, uh, which is not lost on us, the fact that he's a Gentile, okay? Um, or he comes from the Gentile world. But he's a Christian Gentile. Well, he's not a Christian yet. Well, why is he there for Passover? Well, he could be a Jew, but he's not a Christian. So he may not be a Jew. He may be a Gentile. Um, so that it's ambiguous, but the inference toward the Gentile world is obvious to us because um, and and it, what's his name? Simon, Simon who was another famous Simon in our story. Simon what just happened with Simon Peter? He chickened out. I want to read a verse from earlier in Mark, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Who should have been carrying Jesus' cross? Peter. Simon of Capernaum, not Simon of Cyrene, right? So where the disciples fail, God brings in another Simon. 
Where the Jew fails, the Gentile now takes his place. Ultimately, literally, doing the job of a disciple, which is to carry the cross. Okay, so it's a really interesting thought here as we look forward to where the church is going, right? Because by the time this book is ris- this book um, of, of Mark is written, the church is beginning its transition from being a Jewish dominant sect or religion to becoming a Gentile dominant world religion. Okay, and uh, so we be- we kind of see this inferred in Simon of Cyrene. So I think there's reason for the mention of these names because um, he wants to make that connection back to Simon Peter. Interesting when you think about it that way. Okay. So, um, now we come to this, this, this Golgotha situation um, and we have the description we have the description of the death of Jesus on the cross. I would like someone to read for me, uh, really just start at verse 22 and read all the way through verse 37. They brought Jesus <clears throat> to a place called Go. Oh, somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema samachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Okay. So, here we have a description of the crucifixion. It's pretty powerful description. In the midst of it, Jesus cries out, as Angela read for us in perfect Aramaic, <laughs> Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or however you pronounce it, right? And, um, and which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, countless sermons have been preached on why Jesus said this. And people have said, God turned his back on Jesus while he was on the cross because he had 
the bearing the sins of the entire world on him. And so God abandoned him on the cross. And uh, I don't believe that, not for one minute, because if God turned his back on Jesus, he can't look at me either. Okay? Why does Jesus say this? He's just quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. And so I want us to go where he quotes. What have we learned from the Gospel of Mark? If we've learned anything about quotes from the Old Testament, if he quotes something, especially the beginning of a passage, he wants us to look at the entire passage. Jesus is proclaiming the truth as he hangs on the cross. Take a look at Psalm 22, starting at verse 1, which is the first verse. Psalm 22 begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put our trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus is calling on the scripture and remembering, look, I look back on scripture and what do I see? From the time of my ancestors, you have been our deliverer, right? You are always present. You have a plan. You are working that plan out. We will always praise you. That's who I am. That's what we believe. This is what Jesus is saying while he's on the cross. That God is in control. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults and shake their heads. Same words as we have in the book of Mark. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Same thing, same kind of insults that they were saying to Jesus on the cross. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even from my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions. They tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me, right? You can imagine the scene at the cross as these nasty people are just surrounding him, right? All of these religious leaders with all of their vile and anger against Jesus, spitting out insults like bulls right? Like lions. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's a description of crucifixion, okay? Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet when, when David wrote this, okay? It was re- invented by the Assyrians years later, any, hundreds of years later. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus has offered something to drink twice on the cross, right? In, in, the, in the context of, 
of Mark's description because he's dehydrated. He's lost so much blood already, right? And so um, this is part of what it means to die in this terrible way. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Um, If that's not somebody hanging on a cross, I don't know what is. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly. Help me. Deliver me from the sword. It goes on. I'd like to jump to verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteous his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Okay? It's pretty powerful when you read this psalm that Jesus is quoting and meditating on as he hangs on the cross. Many times I thought, well, what is Jesus thinking about as he's hanging on the cross? I think he's meditating on Scripture. It's interesting if you were, you know, if you look in Luke, Luke uh, mentions another word of Jesus. He says, into your hands I commend my spirit. Well, that's a quote from Psalm 31. So if you start at Psalm 22 and end at Psalm 31, maybe those are the Psalms Jesus is meditating on while he hangs on the cross. Take some time to read those Psalms. They're pretty powerful when you think about... Well, next to Psalm 23. Exactly, exactly, right? You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, and it's neat that God inspired David to write these because then that gives believers hope. Right. Because these were foretold. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jesus is calling attention to this scene. He's hanging on the cross and he says to these people, both his critics and his disciples, the women, whoever's around the cross, he's saying, remember Psalm 22. This has all been prophesied. All of this is a drama that's being played out for the salvation of the world. Would the zealots be that biblical? I mean, I know that priesthood, but would the zealots be that biblically knowledgeable that they would know what he's talking about? Probably. Yeah. So it's, it's really a powerful, it's powerful when you think about it this way, because sometimes we just, we just think about the cross. We think about what happened. We don't think about it in the context of God's plan. What do you, what, what he had prophesied would happen. And all of this is playing out according to prophecy. Another thing I learned recently I thought was interesting, uh, you know, in verse 25, it says, it was nine in the morning. He's, he points that out specifically. Right. But if you, if you follow the, the ritual of Seder, of Passover, there's specific times when events, and so at nine in the morning is when they would put the lamb on the stake, and then it was 3 p.m. when it was 
was slaughtered. And that's the time that Jesus died, was at 3. And, uh, and it, there's also a thing at 3 a.m. So it, it, everything follows the ritual they had been performing for 2,000 years. Right, exactly. And not only that they had been performing, that they were performing that day. So this... This is happening in the temple while outside of the city on the cross. The same thing is happening, but for real, right? Um, it's just amazing when you think about it. And all of this timing and all of this works out. And Jesus is in complete control of it because he could have short-circuited it at any point. And when things start to bog down in the trial at night, he has to make a confession to keep things moving. You know, Jesus is in control. He is the priest who is offering up the sacrifice, which is himself. Okay. Well, another thing, too, isn't myrrh, you know, because it said they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, isn't that kind of a pain medication? Right. And he didn't want yeah. to, well, he didn't but want he to had do said, that at all. Be, uh, until I'm back in my father's house, I will not take of anything from the vine. Right. And so this, again, was fulfilling what right. he said. Right. Yeah, and, and just definitely Jesus doesn't want to dull the effects of the pain that he's experiencing. He's, you know, it was offered to him out of mercy. He refuses it because he's going to face the full punishment, right, without any help. It's powerful. All right, we'll stop there and uh, we'll pick it up um, at, at, uh, at, the, the, at verse 38 next time. And uh, work our way through.